Big Sur, possibly the most iconic coastal landscape in the United States. Here, North America's largest undersea canyon meets the craggy coast. Kelp forests support an abundance of marine mammals, including gray whales. Mirroring the kelp forests on land, groves of old-growth redwoods paint streaks of emerald across the amber Santa Lucia Mountains. And if one patiently watches the sky, they may spot a broad pair of dark wings circling over the coast, a bird that soared here all the way back in the Pleistocene era, and then disappeared from these skies altogether for decades. Now, through the hard work of dedicated biologists, the California condor is making a comeback. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. On this episode, we will visit several state parks along Big Sur's coastline. The ancestral homeland of the Esalen tribe. On a quest to glimpse the largest bird to ever soar over North America. And we'll talk to Kelly Sorensen, the executive director of the Ventana Wildlife Society, who has been working diligently for 25 years to bring condors back from the brink of extinction. On this episode of the State Parks Project. Act 1, Flight of the Condors. I first heard the condor story over a decade ago and have been over-enthusiastically sharing it ever since with anyone who will listen. To pick up this story, let's go to Big Sur. I'm driving south on California's Pacific Highway 1. I pass Monterey and the road climbs and winds over where the mountains march right up to the ocean. I stop at Point Sur State Historic Park, where the Point Sur Lighthouse stands 361 feet over the crashing waves. Point Sur is the only complete turn-of-the-century light station open to the public in California and is on the National Register of Historic Places. First lit on August 1, 1889, the lighthouse has remained in continuous operation. I gaze over the coastline, scanning the skies for condors and the horizon for gray whales. It's a glorious scene. I weigh my chances on spotting a condor and air for the slim side so as not to get my hopes too high. Saltwater waves crash against rocky sea stacks. Plumes of spray erupting into the breeze. A curtain of fog is drawn back by the late morning sun. And one would never suspect that hiding under that blue horizon are forests of kelp and an underwater Grand Canyon. It's really cool to see. It's beautiful. This is Paulina Selena Ruiz, marine sciences lecturer and dive instructor with the marine science program at UC Monterey. I am a native from Mexico. I was born and raised in Mexico City, and I grew up scuba diving with my family. So that's just what we did. Once a year, we'd go out to the beach and we'd go diving. So I started diving when I was like 10 years old, mm. and I've always loved it. I've always loved being able to see what's underwater. The program she helps lead sounds so cool that it makes me want to go back to school and do it all over again. If you have no idea how to dive, that's a class for you. And we take the students through a full progression of classes where at the end they become science diving certified, which means that they can do research underwater, work for research institutions by doing diving. Paulina explains why this is the perfect spot to learn about marine science through the medium of scuba diving. The kelp forests out here are fantastic. The sea otters, everything that's out here, it's just, we're so lucky that it's so close too, because we can just walk in from the beach and make it to the canyon or a kelp forest of our choice. Paulina describes the kelp forest as having three different levels, the bottom, the midwater, and the surface and each provides important niches of habitat in this ecosystem, which support not only otters, but five species of seals and sea lions. The kelp forest has a rocky bottom, and it has kelp, and it has fish, and invertebrates, and urchins. 
So a lot of the times at the bottom, you'll see red and orange things on it and sometimes yellow. And now at that bottom, you see a lot of fish that just like to live in the crevices. Then you have the urchins and some invertebrates. Nudibranchs are very, you know, charismatic. People love them. And then the cool thing about the kelp is that since it reaches the top, it, it can grow to about 60 feet in, in height, I think. Then it gives all of these other fishes and animals habitat to live in. And so midwater, you see a lot of fishes, a lot of rockfish, blue rockfish, black rockfish, and schools, perches, just hanging out there. And then if you go all the way to surface level, there's a lot of birds. So a lot of pelicans, gulls, cormorants that just like to like stand on the kelp and just uh, feed off whatever comes up. So the otters, they like to just kind of pull onto the kelp when they want to rest sometimes. So we see a lot of otters out there. Well, not a lot, but we see otters. <laughs> it's common to see them. We see steel, we see sea lions, so we're very lucky. And in whale season, I've never been lucky enough to see them, but I've heard them underwater, and that's really cool too. One time, I was picking up our transects and getting ready to come up, and I started feeling something just like on my face, and I thought it was a fish, and so I tried to like scare it away to try to just get an eye and see what it was, and it was a cormorant, just like, attacking my face for some reason it was really strange oh my god i don't know if they thought i was trying to like get its food i don't know what it was thinking but it felt pretty defensive and i'm like oh my gosh i don't oh, wow. the cormorant underwater by a bird <laughs> <laughs> get attacked by a bird underwater god who would have thought found them Paulina tells me about venturing to the monterey canyon from a beach at point lobo state natural preserve and if you go in to dive that beach, it's really funny because it's a very small bay. And right in the middle of that bay, the canyon gets to the deepest. So if you go out, I want to say about 500 yards, you, you see it. Like you start seeing it drop and it can get very deep very quickly and then if you go towards the canyon it just starts sloping down and it becomes a silty sand that just goes down very steeply very deep we've been on night dives out there where we see deep sea animals uh that came up probably to feed there is something called like the diurnal migration so sometimes when it's dark uh animals that that live in the deep feel free to come up to to feed and stuff. And then when it become, it starts becoming daylight, they go back into darkness again. And so it's amazing. The stuff that we've seen out there is just cool because there's so much variation in depth. How deep have you dove in the canyon? I've gone to about 50 meters and that'll be... About so like 40 meters, that's about 140 feet. Okay. Very deep. It's deep uh, with recreational diving. We can't stay down there long. So we go down there. We can only be down there for five minutes. So we do what we need to get done. We had a project where we were studying the fish community there because it's right where the gradient starts. And um, so we'd only stay for three minutes and have two contingency minutes and then just start working our way up. Because in scuba diving, the deeper you are, the less amount of time you can stay at depth. The shallower you are, the more time you can stay at depth. I'm sure that's something you've gotten used to, but I mean, to someone like me, the idea of just kind of diving into this darkness in the water, that sounds kind of scary. You know, a lot of people find it scary. I think I love it because going down, you imagine you go in the water and then you come down and you're in this forest underwater, this literal forest because the kelp reaches all the way to the surface. And then all of a sudden you see this gradient and you're like this astronaut just literally 
floating into space because it starts getting a bit darker and it's just this like sandy bottom that you're just like floating through. To me, it's one of the coolest sensations in the world. I love it, but it is not for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) The upwelling from the canyon brings rich nutrients to shallow depths, helping to sustain the kelp forests. Freshwater rivers bring nutrients from the forest as well, and it all mixes in places like Elkhorn Slough State Marine Reserve, just inland from Moss Landing State Beach. Here, we witness an eruption of biodiversity, creating one of the most diverse bird habitats in the world. All of these nutrients also support a healthy population of krill, the tiny shrimp-like creatures whose legions support the gray and humpback whales out in the bay. And all of these nutrients and biomass out in the ocean creates a tidal wave of sustenance that supports terrestrial creatures, especially the birds especially the condors. Who we should get back to? You're probably wondering why we took this whole aquatic sidetrack. There is so much here that I wanna talk about. I mean, we've barely even mentioned the otters. I'm realizing we need to come back and do a deeper dive on Monterey Bay and its many state beaches and preserves. But we're headed south to Big Sur, to Point Lobos, Andrew Molera, and Julia Pfeiffer Burns Redwood State Parks. I first became enamored with condors over a decade ago while attending Portland State University. A biologist from the zoo named David Moen came to talk with us. He was rappelling into caves along the Columbia River Gorge, excavating cavities in the rock walls, discovering evidence of historical condor nesting sites. I was fascinated. I'd always assumed that condors were some kind of bird of prey with a really cool name that soared over exotic landscapes. Other than the part about them having the cool name, I was wrong. To hear their story, I got in touch with Kelly Sorensen, executive director of the Ventana Wildlife Society. Alex, yeah, how how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, good. You know, it's crazy always busy kelly is the expert on condor recovery i'm the executive director at ventana wildlife society kelly and his group started back in the 90s releasing bald eagles at big sur and then we finished that project and was invited to reintroduce california condors at the same location so i just continued on and started that project and Uh, became executive director in 2003. Okay. All right. So you've been at this for a while. You've seen the large span of this. Yeah. 25 years of effort so far. Yeah. Just on this Condor project. Yeah. Before we go any further, I think it's important that we get better acquainted with the California Condor. Condors are basically gigantic vultures. Yeah. Vultures. But when I say gigantic, What I mean to say is the largest bird flying over North America, their nine and a half foot wingspan is two feet broader than their closest competitor, the golden eagle. They are incredible to see in the air. I have seen them once floating under the arching metal of Navajo Bridge when launching on the Grand Canyon. They are so massive that they play tricks on your eyes with the sense of scale. They soar much more gracefully than their teetering cousins, the turkey vulture. Yet, up close, one may judge them to be ugly. But Kelly would disagree with you. They're just these stoic, incredible creatures. I'll even call them beautiful because of all the other aspects about them. Their social aspects and their parental care is just amazing. They're long-lived, highly intelligent uh, completely nonverbal. They make no vocalizations. Condors are cavity nesters, meaning they nest in little caverns on rock cliffs or the burnt out core of a redwood. Which is why logging over 95% of our country's old growth was so detrimental to condors. It absolutely decimated their habitat. And also like vultures, they are only carrion creatures meaning they don't kill, they scavenge dead animals. 
only taking what nature provides and cleaning up the landscape. Which is extremely important in an ecosystem like Big Sur, where, for example, carcasses of gray whales, which can weigh close to 100,000 pounds, sometimes wash up onto the shore. You may remember or might have seen the video of how the beach community of Florence, Oregon, dealt with a gray whale when it washed up on their shores with dynamite. It had to be said, the Oregon State Highway Division not only had a whale of a problem on its hands, it had a stinking whale of a problem. What to do with one 45-foot, 8-ton whale dead on arrival on the beach near Florence? The highway division decided the carcass couldn't be buried because it might soon be uncovered. It couldn't be cut up and then buried because nobody wanted to cut it up, and it couldn't be burned. So dynamite it was, some 20 cases or a half ton of it. The hope was that the long-dead Pacific gray whale would be almost disintegrated by the blast and that any small pieces still around after the explosion would be taken care of by seagulls and other scavengers. Indeed, the seagulls had been standing nearby all day. About 75 bystanders, most of them residents who had first found the whale to be an object of curiosity before they tired of its smell, were moved back a quarter of a mile away. The sand dunes there were covered with spectators and landlubber newsmen shortly to become land blubber newsmen, for the blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds. cameras stopped rolling immediately after the blast, the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival as huge chunks of whale blubber fell everywhere. Pieces of meat passed high over our heads while others were falling at our feet. The dunes were rapidly evacuated as spectators escaped both the falling debris and the overwhelming smell. A parked car over a quarter of a mile from the blast site was the target of one large chunk. The passenger compartment literally smacked. Fortunately, no human was hit as badly as the car. However, everyone on the scene was covered with small particles of dead whale. As for the success of the effort, well, the seagulls who were supposed to clean things up were nowhere in sight, either scared away by the explosion or kept away by the smell. So, maybe hurling tens of thousands of pounds of rotting whale flesh into the air, smashing cars and endangering spectators, wasn't the best idea. But condors offer a solution. Condors gorge themselves on carcasses, eating pounds of meat in a sitting. By renting and widening holes in the tough skin of whales and sea leopards, they make the rest of the animal more available to shorebirds, crustaceans, and all manner of microscopic organisms. So rather than a nuisance of pestilence, these carcasses become a boon to the whole ecosystem. And in this sense, it's easy to see condors and vultures as stewards. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're doing a very important service that, uh, you know, <laughs> is probably not something most, most of, uh, you know, <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, they're out there cleaning the landscape of dead animals. That's a really great service to every, everybody, every living thing. Um, Diseases can be harbored in carcasses. They're very important. Vultures in general are very important. And yet, worldwide, there's 23 species of, of vulture, and um, more than half, 13, are either threatened or endangered. So, you know, it's it's really important to pay attention to what's going on in, in the world and in the environment. And if, you know, more than half of our vultures are dying off, I, I really think that should be a big warning sign to us all. A warning sign of what? Of a falling apart environment. Yeah. Um, you can hear how I didn't really know where to take it from there. Today, condors live only in a few ranges of habitat. But I'm curious to hear about how far they once roamed. Well, it depends on how far back you go. Uh, we believe that they were found all the way from British Columbia to Mexico along kind of this Pacific coastal strip, if you will, um, because the, the coastal resources, even after the Pleistocene megafauna that died out 10,000 years ago, 
there still was ample resources, uh, particularly along the coastline. And so we have lots of evidence of condors surviving past that megafauna extinction and living, thriving along the coast, the Pacific coast. Indeed, condors soared not only down the backbone of the Pacific crest from British Columbia to Baja, but also out into the canyon lands of the desert southwest and even into Texas. There's evidence of condors soaring once over Florida and upstate New York. But once the United States began to be colonized by Europeans and the subsequent westward expansion, condors didn't stand a chance. Not only was over 95% of the old growth clear-cut across the country, destroying their habitat, but there was the government-supported systematic eradication of wildlife. That uh, predator eradication efforts were being done by lacing carcasses and, and with strychnine and poisoning uh, grizzly bears and wolves uh, and other predators. That took hundreds, who knows how many different, you know, how many condors died during that time. And just in a matter of a few decades, kind of like the buffalo on the plains, they were wiped down to a very small population and uh, were only surviving in Southern California in this kind of horseshoe-shaped landscape that included the coast range, the transverse range, and then into the Southern Sierra. Condors were finally put on the federal endangered species list in 1967. Yet, despite those protections, the condor population continued to plummet. And no one knew why condors were continuing to die in the wild. In the 1980s, the condor population uh, went down to uh, just 22 individuals. And uh, because it was so close to extinction, uh, all the birds were, were gathered up and brought into captivity. And so for the first time in, in you know, who knows how many years, uh, condors were not in the wild. And there was this last ditch effort to uh, increase their numbers through captive breeding. Condors don't begin to breed until they're at least six years old. And then, a nesting pair will only produce a single egg every other year. And there's no guarantee that that chick will even hatch or mature into adulthood. And so you just can't have a high death rate and maintain your population if you're a condor or a human for that matter. And in the 80s, uh, the annual mortality rate was about 25%. So they just couldn't keep up. And uh, at that time, we really didn't know what the number one cause of decline was. And uh, it took many, many years later to figure that out. Biologists decided something drastic had to be done to save this species. And a plan was hatched to capture the remaining condors and bring them into a captive breeding program. Now, this plan was not without some controversy. Several indigenous groups protested that wild condors are essential to their culture. Other conservationists argued against the entire premise, arguing that nature should be left alone to its own devices, and that human intervention always only seems to make things worse. That story of their numbers dwindling into the, the 20s and then the effort to capture them and do this breeding program and it never something like that really hadn't been done before and I, it was, sounds like it was pretty controversial back in the day yeah it was you know some people just didn't understand um or didn't didn't have faith i guess that 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 uh you know the problems the condors were facing could be solved despite the controversy the plan moved forward it involved baiting the remaining condors with carcasses. Biologists laid in wait in coffin-like boxes lightly buried around the site. When the condor was in the proper spot, they would spring forth with nets to capture the giant bird. The thing though was that these last birds were the last due to their caution and their intelligence. The very last condor, Igor, gave biologists fits for weeks. Finally, 
the condors were all brought into captivity. And for the first time in tens of thousands of years, no condors soared the wild skies over North America. The precious few remaining condors were brought to zoos and refuges, hopefully safe from whatever was harming them out in the wild. And with great hope and determination from both biologists and the condors themselves, the condors did begin to breed. And with their numbers slowly but steadily rising, it was time to figure out how to safely reintroduce condors back to the wild. And that's where we came in. We need to figure out what the challenges are and, and uh, what the, the limiting factors or the, the threats. And once we figure out what those are, uh, then we need to uh, address those and, and minimize those. When you're doing the, the releases, how do you get a condor ready to be released into the wild? Great question. There's a number of things that we do, including training the birds to not land on power poles, because we've learned that that's a big problem. Condors and other big birds, they really like to perch on the tallest thing around, and often in the landscape, those are power lines, and they're not protected for the most part. So if you touch two wires at once, or one wire, and some metal on the pole, uh, you'll get electrocuted. And with a nearly 10-foot wingspan, there's a high propensity for, for that to happen. So it was very important for us to teach these birds how to avoid uh, landing on power poles. Yeah. And, uh, how did you go about doing that? Well, we learned that electric shock <laughs> is a powerful driver. So we created fake power poles. And we put a mild electric shock system on the top, kind of like an electric fence that pulses every second if you were to touch it. And it's uncomfortable, but it doesn't hurt them. And they have an incredible memory, and uh, they learn from that experience at a very young age, and then it, it uh, carries on through the rest of their life. It's, it's just incredible. And so they're in like a big aviary? They're at the release site, yeah, with a fake power pole inside of it with and and, and then also a, a natural perch and one of them is electrified and one's not so it's, it's pretty straightforward but they pretty they get easy it. choice they learn from that yeah they're not just kind of tossed up off a cliff and <laughs> scared off into the distance you know it's quite the opposite where we we very casually slowly open up a door and then now they're free and uh, sometimes it takes them a couple hours to get the courage to go out the door. Um, and that's that's exactly what you want, is a nice, easy, slow transition to, to the outside world. And then you want them to feed immediately after they leave so that they know there's food there and then that they'll keep coming back. Because when they're really young, they don't know where to go. They don't even know how to fly yet. So we can't really expect them to go off and forage on their own without parents. So this is the soft release technique is, is really key. And we really enjoy sharing that in real time with our donors. That's so cool. The other thing that's really important is they, they really need to interact with other condors, um, particularly older ones. We call it mentoring. So we, we've put uh, adult condors from the zoo in there temporarily. Uh, in the early days, we did that because we didn't have any wild flock. And then later on, once we had a wild flock, they became the mentors. So um, just by putting the, the new cohort out at the release site, they get to interact with the wild flock because they go back to that pen and they find them there and then they start interacting. And so it's a great way to sort of make an introduction to the flock that they're about to go into. Oh, interesting. I love this whole concept of mentoring from older condors. How, how old do condors get? Oh, well over 50 years. Well over 50 years. Yeah, so that's what I mean. You gotta, you gotta understand these condors are just amazing. In 1992, condors were first released back into the wild in California and Baja. In 96, they were also released in the Vermilion Cliffs 30 miles north of the Grand Canyon. 
but only time would tell if the once captive condors would thrive again in the wild. The Pacific Highway undulates around the rolling coastline. I get a local's tip to stop at Nepenthe, a gorgeous restaurant and cafe that sits above the crashing ocean with a broad view looking south. I get a cup of coffee. It's pricey, but the coffee is really good and the view is more than worth it. The remaining fog is burning off. The last cottony remnants tangled in redwood branches, and out from the gray mist, a pair of broad dark wings emerge. I hold my breath. Without thinking, I stand up and walk to the railing, only to realize it's just the condor's common cousin, the turkey vulture. I finish my coffee and drive south to Julia Pfeiffer Burns Redwood State Park. A short trail brings one to an overlook of a rocky cove where slender McQuay Falls plummets a straight 80 feet onto the sandy beach, the Pacific Ocean lapping at the freshwater spray. I spot a young couple just beaming at one another. Please forgive the audio quality here. It was really windy by the ocean. Wow. <laughs> well, can you guys introduce yourselves? Uh, I'm Kyle. Sarah. Hi. Hey. Tell me what just happened. Uh, uh, we just got engaged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just proposed to her. Uh, yeah, it's been a long time coming. So. Yeah, it's yeah. Been good. All right, right on. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank where, where, you. A long time. How long is a long time? Oh, uh, well, for a year and a half. Yeah. But. Met on Tinder at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. Right. Oh, right. <laughs> but it actually works. Dude, right before lockdown, yeah. What a, before, right before I hit the record button, you said that this is your favorite place. This is, yeah, this is my, yeah, this is my favorite spot. I mean, I've, he's never been here and I've always wanted to come back and I've, this is the whole time we've been planning this trip, this is like the spot I've wanted to come to. And When we first met, she always talked about, like, are you a beach person or a mountain person? And I was like, I guess I'm more of a beach person. She's more of a mountain person. And this was like the perfect mix of both. Uh -huh. And with a waterfall thrown into it, oh my I was like, oh, dude, I, she said it was awesome. So showed up. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty perfect. Congratulations. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you guys. Yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank enjoy the rest, you of, your, so enjoy the rest of your, your life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Take care, guys. I still haven't spotted a condor out here, but I am loving this journey. To track the condors, each are tagged and numbered, giving biologists and their adoring fans ways to not only track the condors, but to come to understand their personalities and follow their stories. And I want to talk about two condors in particular, condors number 190 and 167, also known as Kingpin and Redwood Queen. Both were born in the Los Angeles Zoo but had two very different beginnings when released into the wild. When Redwood Queen was released, it took her a long time to wander more than a quarter mile from the release site. The rest of the flock, whom condors are dependent upon to learn the nuances of the wild from, bullied Redwood Queen. She had to wait until everyone else was done feeding before she could eat. But I like to think that these challenges gave her the grit that she would need in the years to come. Kingpin, on the other hand, quickly became one of the most dominant males in the flock, second only to one of the first five condors to be released at the site, named Patriarch. We get a first! It's Patriarchy down! Woo! Anyways, Patriarch perishes in 2005 making Kingpin the dominant male of the flock. And in 2006, Kingpin and Redwood Queen became a mating pair and established the first nest inside the cavity of a redwood since the condors had been released in the Ventana wilderness. They gave birth to their first chick, a daughter named Kodama, which means forest spirit in Japanese. 
Oh, I was just going to say that must be so exciting to see these wild hatchings out there and like seeing how nature finds a way. And, and it's, I mean, that's a huge goal of your work. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's the proof, um, that it's working. Those birds are out there just doing their thing. And we had what we had six nesting pairs just this year and all, all six fledged chicks. So, I mean, you know, the, the reproduction side of, of the equation is actually quite good, thankfully. Again, it's the big problem is the mortality side of things. Condors mate for life. They put all of their hopes into a single egg laid only every other year. Perhaps that's why they have such strong parental instincts. For example, unmatched condors will foster orphaned young. Kingpin and Redwood Queen went on to have six more offspring augmenting the wild flock to once again soar over the central California coast. And they carried the mantle for the longest running mating pair. Their sixth chick, a girl named Eniko, was born on April 25, 2020, in the redwoods outside of Julia Pfeiffer Burn State Park, 20 years after first becoming a nesting couple. A webcam was set up in the old-growth redwood cavity nest, and thousands from around the world got to watch as these parents nurtured their little chick. And it was just incredible to watch on live-streaming camera this, this young condor being raised by these two birds. And I think people around the world fell in love with condors when they realized just how loving and caring condors are and how they share in the duties of raising the chick. And while watching on camera, you, you, you would have seen Aniko and her father literally wrapped, you know, wrapping their, their wings around each other and, and um, you know, kind of nibbling each other, this very loving interaction. And, and, you know, you just, you wouldn't expect that from a condor for some reason. So condors are doing pretty well. Mating pairs are having successful fledglings for decades. There is a growing global movement rooting for these avian wonders. Thousands check in daily on baby and Nico's progress. But in August of 2020, record heat and one man's fit of madness would threaten all of that. At the same time, the CZU Lightning Complex fire, which we talked about in our last episode, was raging through Big Basin State Park up north a 30-year-old man who was illegally growing pot in the hills of Big Sur named Ivan Geronimo Gomez started the Dolan Fire next to Lime Kiln and Julia Pfeiffer Burns State Parks. The Dolan Fire burning in South Monterey County. Prosecutors say arson is behind it. One of the most destructive wildfires in Monterey County history, the Dolan Fire. Gomez allegedly admitted to starting the fire with a Bic lighter. When first responders arrived, Gomez is accused of throwing rocks at them. He also claimed to have killed several people at the pot camp. One firefighter who was overcome by flames was so badly burned that he spent nearly two months in a burn unit. That's KSBW News reporting back in October of 2020. The Dolan fire burned over 128,000 acres, destroyed 15 homes, and even entrapped a crew of wildland firefighters severely injuring at least one of them. Both Lime Kiln and Julia Pfeiffer Burns Redwood State Parks were scorched in the blaze. But the fire happened in perhaps the worst place imaginable for the condors. It swept through the Ventana Wildlife Society's condor sanctuary. And because that's the release site, it's where the condors and their nests are the most concentrated. Thousands watched the live stream from Aniko's nest as the fire burned the forest around them. On the screen, we see Aniko's mother, Redwood Queen, step towards the entrance, shielding Aniko's little downy body and comically small wings. A crackling can be heard outside. The fire's light grows around the entrance to the nest. The crackling reaches up fever pitch. 
The fire seems to be all around them. Redwood Queen flaps her wings in panic. Just then, the live stream terminates. The technology all burned up. Everyone was wondering, what happened? It was excruciating to watch, but it's the kind of thing where you just couldn't take your eyes off the screen. Um, I don't think I even slept that night. It was, it was horrifying, really. You know, what happened after the fire and we were watching that night, we literally watched the fire burn outside of the redwood cavity, and then the cable was cut from the fire. And we didn't know if Nico had survived or not. And you could only imagine the thousands of people around the world who are watching this camera, and, and now they're just hanging. You know, they're on edge. What happened to Nico? And, of course, we can't go into the fire area at first, so it was about two weeks maybe maybe even three, before we were even able to get in there. And uh, we, we, we finally got in, and, and we found Aniko to be alive. But we also knew that her father, Kingpin, died in the fire that night. So her mother, Redwood Queen, is trying to finish the job of raising Aniko. The Dolan fire killed 12 condors that night, including two chicks, including Kingpin. Aniko's father and Redwood Queen's mate for over 20 years. And in the ensuing weeks after the fire, whether because of the environmental chaos of the event or just the brutality of nature, an unmatched male condor named Ninja attacked their nest. Young Aniko was flushed from the nest to the forest floor far below. Redwood Queen fought Ninja off like the boss she is. However, Injured and still immature, Iniko wasn't able to get back up to the nest. And uh, Iniko was on the ground and, and had a limp, and so we were concerned for this bird's safety, so we rescued the chick, took it to our partner at Los Angeles Zoo, and... What was, what was her injury? Why was she limping? Well, thankfully, it was a minor injury and didn't really need any treatment, so she just... Uh, spent the last year in captivity getting stronger and interacting with other condors, that mentoring thing, and and uh, she's ready for the wild. And she's ready for the wild. How old is she now? A year and a half. A year and a half. We, yeah, we, we typically release at a year and a half or older. That's the age that they would start to become independent from their parents. On December 4th, 2021, Aniko was released back into the wild. It seems to be doing great. She was recently spotted, reunited with her mother, Redwood Queen, at one of the feeding sites. Unfortunately, with Pinkpin gone, you know, we just don't know who she's going to pair up with and if, and if that's going to work out. But wait, we're hoping for the best. Yeah, yeah. Do you, is there a chance she would pair up with that male that came in? Or is there bad blood? It's, it's, I think it's bad blood. I don't think that's ever going to happen. <laughs> uh. <laughs> She's, uh, she and a bird named Phoenix uh, have, have been uh, showing a lot of signs of pair bonding. Phoenix is interesting. Phoenix himself survived a fire in 2008 when he was a chick. He was in a redwood tree 180 feet up. And we know that because one of our, our biologists climbed up there <laughs> to check on that chick. Oh my goodness. And and so Phoenix survived and uh, did Phoenix get to stay in the wild? And Phoenix then stayed in the wild, fledged, you know, the parents continued to care for him. And yeah, that's why we named him Phoenix, like yeah. rising from the ashes. <laughs> Gosh, this, I mean, this whole species feels like the Phoenix. Just... <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. How are you guys doing? Great. I'm at Pfeiffer Big Burns. What the hell is this called? I'm at Pfeiffer Big Sur State Park, walking back from the Big Sur River. Just went back and found the coolest swimming hole. Uh, just a really fun scramble over these boulders through these clear, clear pools and streams. Of course, I forgot my shorts. So I had to strip down my boxers. Hope the few people that were there weren't too terrified. 
there was this cave with this waterfall coming down and it was just it was just so cool and I didn't expect this you know I'd, I'd heard it was pretty but just what an amazing gorgeous landscape these views where you can just look way out sea cliffs everywhere natural arches and the eroding rock you know it's just not so much what this whole project is about it's just these hidden little gems that we come upon on our our journey and had my eye out for condors along the way and of course you know when you're looking for something like condors every single soaring silhouette looks like a condor so remember back to earlier in this episode when we talked about how it was a mystery what was killing the condors in the wild and that's why it was so imperative to bring condors into captivity well in the years since those days Biologists have figured out the culprit to the condor's demise. Believe it or not, it's it's the ingestion of uh, lead ammunition, so spent ammunition that's that's been you know shot into a, an animal of some kind, and it either uh, stays inside of the, of that animal or even passes through it, leaves behind hundreds of little fragments of lead. And condors are only scavengers, so. You know, they're not going around killing things. They're only looking for dead animals. And, uh, you know, a lot of animals are out, out there on the landscape that have been shot. And I'm not just talking about hunting uh, because, you know, uh, usually big game hunters will find and retrieve their animal. Um, what I'm really talking about are, are the so-called varmint animals that are shot and left out in the landscape. Those are riddled with lead and Condors and other wildlife ingest those, and it's a major limiting factor for the condor population. Again, because they really can't sustain themselves with high mortality rates. So because condors can live 50, 60 years, and the lead is a bioaccumulator, it just it just adds up in their system. And Well, I have to stop you there, Alex. Okay. It, oh, okay. It doesn't, yeah. it, it does accumulate in bone, and then it can become a, a reservoir of, of secondary poisoning later. But it's, that's, it's not really an accumulation thing. It's more acute than that. If they swallow a 22-sized bullet, and, it's, and their stomach acids are interacting with that thing for you know even just a few days, it can be devastating. They get their their um, nervous system starts to shut down. Their their uh, digestive system stops functioning, and they just literally start to slowly starve to death. So it can be from just one bullet. Correct. Switching to copper ammunition and instead of using lead ammunition is really not a huge ask. And we we know that hunters and ranchers are a big part of the solution here. Uh, they. Hunters and ranchers have always been conservationists. It's the poachers and, and the people who continue to use lead ammunition that are the problem. But uh, we want to help people to switch and really make this a lasting solution. Right on, right on. Oh, well, I guess I should mention uh, how we're doing that is providing free copper ammunition to hunters and ranchers. And we've been doing that since 2012. So it's no gimmick. We've given away, uh, well, we've, we've spent over a half million dollars on this project already. Wait, free ammo? Free ammo to hunters and ranchers. Oh, I love that. Uh, what a great idea. We're just trying to get at the, the real problem and, and solve it in, in a collaborative way, not a controversial way. And due to this collaboration, education, and of course the hard work of groups like the Ventana Wildlife Society, Kelly is optimistic for the condor's future. Yeah, it's kind of like peregrine falcons and bald eagles, two species I personally worked with. When we first started, it just seemed like there was no chance we'd ever be able to get their numbers back up to anything of reasonable size. And bald eagles now, oh my gosh, we have like 15,000 breeding pairs just in the lower 48 states. And 40 years ago, that that would have only been about 450 breeding pairs. Um, peregrine falcons completely taken off the endangered species list. They've recovered far greater than we ever dreamed. 
I think the same thing is going to happen with the condor as soon as we eliminate the number one threat. And we know what that is now. And the condor's range is expanding. On March 25, 2022, four condors were released up north in the Redwood National and State Parks in an effort led by the Yurok tribe, the traditional residents of that land who have shared a spiritual connection with the condor since time immemorial. So that's going to be the newest big expansion in range. In California, I just expect the range to expand into the Bay Area, uh, more into the Sierras, and uh, points in between. There's still a lot of habitat out there for them. Yeah, I, I want to see them in the Columbia River Gorge outside of Portland. Well, there's been a lot of talk about that, and they might make their way all the way up that far. It'll be interesting to see. Condors have also been tracked flying from Pinnacles National Monument to Mount Diablo State Park east of Oakland, over 200 miles away. I never did spot a condor that day. Perhaps if I had stuck to the coastal highway instead of going and playing up the river. But the point of this little road trip was to have fun first and spot condors second. But the knowledge that this ancient bird is out there, nesting in ancient trees, reclaiming an ever-expanding territory, clawing its way back from the brink of extinction, stirs feelings of completeness. A once-missing link in the biological web, now restored and hitched to all other living things. A spiritual link for Native Americans like the Yurok tribe and Navajo Nation. A chronological link to the Halcyon days before the American invasion, all the way back to the Pleistocene, when condors unsullied the landscape of megafauna-sized carrion, the beginning of their legacy of ecological service that once again continues today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the State Parks Project. We want to thank Kelly Sorensen and the other hardworking stewards of the Ventana Wildlife Society. To support their work and learn more, go to VentanaWS.org. That's V-E-N-T-A-N-A-W-S.org. The State Parks Project is a community member of Leave No Trace, who reminds us to respect wildlife by using non-lead ammunition when hunting. Soundtrack provided by Spare Rib and the Bluegrass Sauce and Free Music Archive. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. To see photos of the Big Sur journey and find out more about the project and share your stories and photos, please go to stateparksproject.com and tag us on Instagram. We'll be following the Condor's progress in the months to come. Please check back on this and other stories on the State Parks Project, America's second best idea.